Hi, and welcome to the Female Filmmaker Friday podcast. Uh, I'm very excited for this week's um, show as it's a director that I really love and someone who I haven't really gotten to talk to uh, or talk about that often. Um, so I'm really excited not only to talk about this filmmaker, but who my guest is, one of my favorite online writers right now, um, it's Angelica Jade Bastien. Can you speak a little bit about who your favorite female filmmaker is? Oh, I have to pick just one. That's so hard. Yes. Um, oh, my God. Uh, well, definitely uh, this television director, Millicent Shelton, who directed my favorite episode of The Flash last season, Welcome to Earth 2. I think she's an amazing director when it comes to action, and she should be on everybody's list for every comic book film. Uh, beyond her, Ida Lupino. I feel like Ida Lupino has had such an influence on me as a writer. Uh, and I still love just, even just watching, uh, the Twilight ep Zone episode she directed, Mask, like, I mean, she's just such an amazing director, and I love writing about her work and want to write more about her. And then, I think beyond that, uh, I hope I'm not butchering her name, but Melina Matsukos, she's worked with Beyonce a lot, she directed the Formation video, and, and she's directed two episodes thus far of... Issa Rae's HBO show Insecure, and she just is, she's also very emotionally evocative to me, and has just a really great understanding of the bodies of actors and how to move them around in a space. I really am, ex I really want to see her direct a feature-length film. I'm glad she's getting to work on TV and um, do more than just music videos, but she just has such an interesting way of of playing with the frame that I really want to see what she would do on a larger canvas. She definitely, the, um, formation video is so wonderful and so, um, rich with, um, symbolism, both with the way she uses the, the people in it, but also sort of the, the space between the people and the, their background. Definitely. She also has a very interesting eye for details. There's this uh, moment in episode three of Insecure that she directed, and it's this party scene going on. And there's this moment where this someone calls attention to the shoes that Issa Rae's character, whose name Issa, uh, is wearing versus her friend's shoes. And like it was just like a it's a small moment, but it's just a really telling way. To that it talked about the different ways black women could be and like black female identity and what kind of black female identity is accepted and isn't. And it was just a few seconds shot of one woman wearing Fendi heels and the other woman wearing red Converse. And I thought she just has like a really interesting eye for details. I think other directors don't always pick up on and she deserves to have, you know, a larger canvas. I'd be really curious to see what she would do. Um, on a feature-length film. That sounds that sounds great. She yeah, it's it's good to know that a lot of um, a lot of women in general start at mu with music videos, move to television, then move to features. So hopefully we'll see a feature from her in the not too distant future. So if you could uh, let everyone know a little bit about you as a writer and where they can find you. Sure. Uh, this is always tough to do, but um, 
I'm a freelance writer based in Chicago. I write for places like New York Times, Vulture, Rolling Stone, and Village Voice regularly. I tend to write a lot of television criticism and a lot about comic books, old Hollywood, and probably try to mention Betty Davis within almost every article I write. You also wrote one of my favorite pieces about Joan Crawford ever. Wow. It was so great. When I read that, I was like, yes, yes, someone who gets Joan. Um, I love Joan, so it's always great to see someone also understand Joan. Um, can you talk a little about your blog, Mad Women and Muses, or your feature? I don't know if it's fe- feature or a blog, but a little both. But sure. I love it. Uh, uh, so Mad Women and Muses was a blog I started a few years ago before I was doing criticism all that seriously, but I wanted an outlet for it. And I don't update it as much as I should, but it sort of represents my central desires as a writer, which is to deal with female madness and how women's ambitions and desires are very pathologized in American culture. And I'm currently working on a book proposal, fingers crossed, that that deals with those themes and kind of continues this column I was doing previously called The Feminine Grotesque. And women like Joan Crawford, Betty Davis, uh, and even Eartha Kitt figure into it quite a bit. Uh, And I just, I think I like sort of changing the narrative when it comes to women like Joan Crawford especially, because I think people don't really give her the credit she deserves as an actress and pioneer in a lot of ways. I will read the heck out of that book. Um, <laughs> if there's any publishers listening, pu- take her book, and I will buy 10 million copies um, and give it to everyone as a gift. Um, I Yeah, your, your uh, column, Feminine Grotesque, is one of my favorites. I believe I've read all of them. I hope I've read all of them. Um, but there's so many, just so many good points of view on, uh, I, mean, I think, the female sort of, mindset that I don't think is explored well elsewhere and um I just think you're I think you have a really unique point of view so I'm glad that you uh share it with everybody oh thank you uh which brings us to this week's filmmaker Kathy Lemons who was a director that I wasn't very familiar with until last year I had actually seen her last film in theaters having no idea who she was I didn't even realize the film was directed by her. I just had seen um, the trailer for Black Nativity in theaters and was like, this looks amazing. And I saw it and I really loved it. And then looking her up, I was like, oh my God, she did Eve's Bayou. I've heard of this movie. I've been meaning to see this movie for years. Um, So then last year during A Year with Women, I caught up with that film and talked to me. Um, And then just a couple days ago, I finally tracked down her second film, Caveman's Valentine. Um, I can't wait to talk about that one. And oh, I just yeah. think she's I just think she's such a unique filmmaker. It's it's sort of a bummer to realize that she's been making films as a director for almost 20 years and has only made four films. Yeah, it, yeah, that's really sad, but honestly, she's on like the better end of the scale when it comes to black female filmmakers because a lot of times they'll like, you know, like Julie Dash did oh, yeah. Daughters of the Dust and I got to interview her uh uh, not yesterday, but um, Friday, because she's in town for the Chicago International Film Festival, and they're showing a restoration of the film, and that is that was like her last major film, and that and was, was in 20, the early nineties. Twenty five years I was like, ago, yeah, 
Yeah, I was like three when that movie came out. That's ridiculous. Especially since you can kind of see how many people she's inspired. Um, like Beyonce's Lemonade film takes a lot from Eve's Bayou and Daughters of the Dust. And it's just kind of, it's sad that women like Cassie Lemons, Julie Dash, and others just haven't done as much as they should have because they have such strong voices and they're just such amazing filmmakers. It's, it's actually really infuriating. I uh, bumped into a colleague of mine after my interview with Dash and I mentioned how ridiculous it is that you see these directors who who come to Sundance, Sundance and you know they get an award or they get a lot of buzz and these white dudes then go straight to these huge movies, even though I don't think they have much of a voice as a director, and they can't even block actors properly. But then you have directors with such strong voices like Cassie Lemons who do not get half the shine they deserve, in my opinion. Well, like uh, Tina Mabry, who did Mississippi Damned, and then yes. hasn't been able to really do anything since. And she went to USC, like... She's not, like, just somebody who made a film out of nowhere and went to Sundance and didn't know anybody. She's she's well into the industry, and yet still no one could hire her until um, Ava just hired her for Queen Sugar. And it's like, I'm so, I'm grateful for, for um, someone like Ava who sort of made it past all these hurdles and is now pulling people up the ladder with her. Because I feel like, I feel like that's the only way to... Someone has to bust the doors and then bring people with them. Exactly. And it's 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 just not how a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of women who make it in the industry don't, they feel like if they, they can only pull themselves, you know? Yeah. Um, I've, I've had that happen even within criticism where coming across women who have a stronger standing than I do and they get kind of weird when they see other women coming up. But thankfully there's also... I think a lot of women who've been very, very, very helpful to me, you know, and just kind of had been wanting to see more voices because there's enough room for all of us, in my opinion. But I think, I don't know, you, you're working in an industry that conditions you to believe that female voices don't matter or that there can only be one, especially when it comes to like black female filmmakers, as if there's one version of blackness. So it's good, you know, that's one thing I loved about Queen Sugar is that Ava DuVernay, you know, really brought a lot of women of color to the direct, to be able to direct on that show. It's a beautiful show, too. Oh, it's so, it's so well made. I'm really enjoying it. Um, so back to, back to Cassie Lemons. So when was the first time you saw one of her films? Was it Eve's Bayou or did you see one of the other ones first? So it was Eve's Bayou, and I saw it when I, because it came out, yeah, it came out in 1997, but I remember seeing it when I was pretty young, because my mom really liked the movie, because we usually don't get to see versions of the rural Louisiana South, you know, like rural Louisiana experiences. A lot of times it's really just New Orleans, and so my mother really connected with that film because it reminded her of home. My mom is... My mom's from New Orleans, but her family and, like, my entire maternal family is from New Iberia Parish. Um, and so watching that film, it has a lot of parallels to our own family life, and I always really loved it, partially because it was one of the only films that my mom and I both had, you know, the same feelings about. Uh, but I only, you know, I hadn't rewatched it for a very long time until... Yeah, I think like this year when I went to Ebert Fest because Cassie Lemons was there and they show the film and it's just so beautiful to see it on the big screen. Um, 
Roger Ebert From- actually said in 1997 that this was the best film of the year. I agree. It's it's sort of like, you know, we, we've been talking for the last few years about Oscar So White, but this was 1997, and this was the one of the most acclaimed films of the year, and it got how many Oscar nominations? Zip. Nothing. Zero. Nada. She won the National Board of Review's Debut Director Award. It was nominated for multiple indie spirits. Debbie Morgan had one of the most praised performances yeah. of not only 1997, but now, in retrospect, of all time. And nothing, nothing. It's it's um, shocking to watch it so many years later and see it as such a brilliant film and go, what were they thinking in 97? But, like, even if it came out this year, uh, maybe this year, but, like, in the last two years, if something this great had come out, it probably still would have been ignored. It's frustrating. Yeah, it's... That's why rewatching the film, it still feels so vital and powerful, and it's just such a beautifully rendered portrait of the black experience we don't always get to see. Because I think sometimes when it comes to pop culture, we kind of act like there's only one version of blackness, and that's also why I really appreciate Eve's Bayou. So what... um. What sort of aspects of the film do you think really speak to Lemons as a as her point of view? Well, the first sequence or scene that I always think of when I think of Eve's Bayou is there's this moment when, let me look up this actress's name because I do not remember her name, but um, that involves mirrors. And I thought that also with watching Cavemen, um, The Caveman's Valentine, I don't think they run throughout all of her films, but... There's a moment with yeah, Debbie Morgan's character, uh, and she's talking to Journey Smollett, who is, is pretty much the protagonist playing Eve, and um, she's talking about an old lover of hers who killed another lover. And there's this moment where she's talking to Eve, and then it kind of pushes through the mirror into the memory. It's really like a really striking moment in use of mirrors. And I've always really been attracted to the idea of mirrors and how we kind of interact with our own images and kind of portray ourselves in a way. Um, So that scene is the first one I always think of when it comes to Eve's Bayou, because a lot of it is, the film is about history and sort of the myths we create about ourselves and what we believe in. And that scene, I feel like, is not only the most visually striking from the movie, but I think it sort of speaks to everything the film is trying to go for. I like that one. There's a moment that I always think about um, when her, is it her sister? Has has finally acted up enough that she's leaving the family. Oh, mm-hmm. and she's sitting in the car, and the two girls are looking at each other, and they are just sharing this moment of truth with each other without having to say anything. And they both know what they're feeling, and they're both feeling conflicted. And it's just such a it's such a beautiful cinematic moment because you you don't need you don't even need language. You just need these looks on these girls. Um, that moment. Stayed, that moment really stayed with me after watching this film. Yeah, that is a really beautiful moment. And I think one of Cassie Lemons' strengths is knowing when you don't need dialogue and you can kind of just let 
emotions be apparent in how the actor is moving or how they're looking at another actor. And she never overplays something. She's really strong when it comes to evoking emotion, I think, at least. Definitely. And she, this cast is just to die for. It's Samuel L. Jackson, Lynn Whitfield, Debbie Morgan, Journey Smollett, Megan Good, Diane Carroll. Like, you can't even ask for a better cast. And everyone, no. everyone is so on top of their game here. I think she's a great actor-director. And that, you know, it makes sense because she started out as an, act, as an actor. That's true. Yeah, the first time I think most people have seen her is Silence of the Lambs. That's, like, I think the first memory of, like, her as just someone involved in film um, for me because my mother was also a huge fan of that, that movie. I don't know why she thought it was okay for me to watch that, but... <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. um, I, I'm particularly struck in, in Eve's Bayou by Lynn Whitfield, um, because she's an actress and I think there's so many black actresses that you feel like if they, for whatever reason that they didn't get the career they deserved, but Lynn Whitfield was just so gorgeous and just such a great actress. It blows my mind that she did not completely blow up. Yeah, she's she's definitely one that whenever I see her in a film, I'm always like, "You are so good. Why why aren't you in all the films?" Um, and it just sort of goes with the whole conversation we had about um, black women filmmakers. Is like if they're the ones that want to write these these roles for for women, and they're the ones that want to create films for these actresses, and yet they're the ones that aren't getting films made, and so you get the sort of vicious cycle uh, behind and in front of the camera. Exactly. Or, like, even Diane Carroll, like, she's an Academy Award-nominated actress and, you know, an Emmy. I think she won an Emmy for, or at least was nominated mm-hmm. for an Emmy in the 70s, and yet, you know, what happened to her? She sort of disappeared forever and then sort of came back. Uh, she was on that USA TV show for a while. Um, yeah, what, uh, what was it called? White um, Collar? She was on White Collar. Yes, there you go. And she was so good. Which, and I had never heard of her. And my mom was like, girl, you need to know about <laughs> Diane Carroll. And I'm like, I wasn't alive in the 70s. I'm sorry. <laughs> thankfully, it, thankfully, my mom was was aware of her and, you know, filled me in. But it's just depressing. It is depressing. You know, I, I have this piece actually coming out. Um, the British Film Institute has this collection on black stars that's coming out soon. And I have an essay in it about black stars within film noir and I ended up writing in it unless like my editor decided to cut this in it but I ended up saying you know I don't believe that any black actor has ever been able to reach their potential in film even the biggest ones like I'm I don't really think they have been able to there's a there's a great I mean you read it because I read this book because of you but that uh, essay in um the devil finds work where James Baldwin basically says that same thing where he mm-hmm. talks about the two greatest at his time uh, at his time um was Paul Robeson and uh was it Ethel Waters I think mm-hmm. he was writing about how like they should have been huge and they were huge within the confines that they were allowed to be but they didn't get to be what they should have been and that's exactly. still a problem we're sort of having when you think about just black Hollywood today you mostly think like Denzel Washington and maybe Will Smith. Maybe. And then you're kind of out. And it's like, there's so many more great actors and actresses. Like, for example, um, and this we'll get to with Black Activity, we have um, Angela Bassett 
Yeah. How is Angela Bassett not the like greatest film actress? She's one of the gr- greatest film actresses maybe ever. And how is she not like a superstar? Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't make sense. Like she has everything necessary to be a star. And I feel like, you know, there's a lot of conversation about how say black actors are thriving in television and how it seems like television is going through a bit of a renaissance with black actors with, you know, shows like Insecure and Atlanta and Luke Cage and so on and so forth. But even then, I have a hard time being, like, fully happy when we have moments like this in pop culture because I'm like, I remember, you know, the 90s felt pretty good for black actors on TV and in film, and then we went through, like, a really weird drought, and now it's kind of getting better. But, you know, how long will that last? Who who is actually getting a chance to create behind the scenes? Like, I just have a lot of questions about it, and I always worry about us, you know, critics and audiences getting a bit too happy and then not asking for more, because I'm still not satisfied with what I'm seeing. Like, it's great to see, you know, yes, it's great to see Angela Bassett get work on Ryan Murphy shows, but, God, she deserves better. Like, seriously. (laughs) Yes. She deserves to be in everything. Just that clip of her um, in Broadway... Broadway salutes Hillary, like, oh my oh, god, yeah, that's right. oh my god, she's so great, it's, it's, and she had, like, a moment in the 90s where she was in, um, so many movies where she was the lead, and they were number one box office hits, and then she had an Oscar nomination, all kinds of stuff, and then just, she just sort of, like, Hollywood forgot about her. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. You know. Um, speaking of, well, I don't know how to, I was trying to pivot that into talking about <laughs> Caveman's Valentine. It didn't really work. So shifting, Caveman's Valentine. This was a film I couldn't find for the longest time. I finally located a DVD of it. Um, it's so weird and so amazing. And I, like, the whole time I was watching it, I was like, what am I watching? And I love that because I love films that make me, like, question what I'm watching like I I had I just it was so not what I'm used to that I loved every minute of it and um it's so it's a film about a man who is homeless probably a paranoid schizophrenic at one point a musical prodigy and now he is solving a mystery (laughs) yeah it's bonkers like that if you like just tell somebody the plot it's like they'd be like, what? Yeah, you're like, Samuel Jackson plays a paranoid schizophrenic who comes across a frozen dead body outside (laughs) of the cave he lives in, and then he decides he's going to track down the killer, and then there's a whole storyline with his daughter, who's a police officer, and how he's kind of, his mental illness and not having it treated causes, you know, a rift in his family, so he's sort of isolated. I mean, it's a weird movie to describe, um, but it's actually really surprising how it handles like some really heavy, heavy themes. And it's it's so beautifully shot. It's the same cinematographer from Eve's Bayou, um, Amy Vincent. And what I was noticing was it may be the most beautifully shot I've ever seen Samuel L. Jackson. Yep. Like he's so lit so perfectly that it almost reminded me of old Hollywood, the way they would film women. 
to get all their angles just right and make them look so beautiful. And every time, every time I paused it, I was like, Samuel Jackson, I never noticed how beautiful you are before. And, and even, um, slight spoiler alert at the end of the film, one of the last lines is you have a really beautiful face. And I was like, yes, he does does. have a really beautiful face. He does. And you know, I'm actually not the biggest Samuel L. Jackson fan, like at all. Uh, but I like what he's done with Cassie Lemons. I think she like knows how to use him in a way that most other directors, I think, are too obsessed with the posturing, shouting, badass version of him. Yeah, they don't let him be vulnerable and kind of messed up in a way. You know what I mean? So yeah, he. Part of what's so great about this performance is you get what you expect from Samuel Jackson with the yelling and the and the larger than life, but then you get these moments where everything is on his face and it's just these like we we were talking about with lemons with these emotions that are all played out on his face and all played in his eyes and all played on how he's looking at things and those moments are the moments that you really notice what a great actor he is and what range he has. Yeah, I think my favorite, or one of my favorite moments of that uh, in the film is when that, what is, I don't know, he's a banker dude played by Anthony Michael Hall. Oh, yeah, he's a, he's a, uh, some sort of lawyer. Um, yeah, he has money, basically, and he gets kind of interested uh, in Samuel L. Jackson's character in a way that's very interesting, uh, like almost like he just looks at Samuel L. Jackson's character as like a curiosity, it's- and so he... You know, he ends up taking him in and cleaning him up so he can um, go about his weird journey as a sort of detective. Um, it's an interesting moment in the film because I, I feel like there's some great sort of class commentary there. Because when mm-hmm. he first meets him, he's sitting there and he still looks very, you know, dirty and has these giant dreads and a huge beard. And he's writing music, but he doesn't have a pen and he asks for a pen. And the guy is just so confused that this person wouldn't even ask him for a pen. And then when he realizes he's writing music, suddenly he's like, oh, I guess it's worth giving you a pen because you're doing something that's noble. And then later he, like, tests his his knowledge of, of music because he doesn't really believe that someone that looks like this would have gone to Juilliard. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he totally schools him. And then later, so he's already been schooled, he's already proven that he knows a lot about music, but the character still doesn't quite believe it until he gets him to play the piano. And it, it just sort of shows, I, I feel, sort of the way in which a certain class of people will only have empathy for other people if they prove they're worth that empathy. Yeah, I agree. And, and I think that's uh, what makes the film so interesting. Like the actual... Uh, you know, crime he's trying to solve is, like, the least interesting aspect of the film. What's interesting is seeing how people react to Samuel L. Jackson's character and the class dynamics and their expectations of him and even our expectations as an audience when it comes to a character like this because it's very rare to have a black person be the main character of a film and they're dealing with mental illness, especially in a way that doesn't look down upon the character. So that it, it becomes like actually a really powerful statement on homelessness and blackness and class in a way you're not expecting, especially if you just hear the synopsis. You're just like, this sounds really strange. Like, how does this work as a film? But somehow it does. I, I also really enjoy the bits with uh, Tamara Tooney playing 
kind of his wife. She's a manifestation of his wife. Mm-hmm. Um, and I find it interesting because you find out, sort of, spoiler alert, that his wife is still with us, and his wife is clearly much older than this virgin. Mm-hmm. But he's so, like, separated from his other life, from it, and he talks about it being another life, that the only version of his wife he can really handle anymore is the one he used to know in that version of his life. Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of times when we have a character like that in a film, the former wife or whatever that we only really know through memory, either because she's dead or he's disconnected from her, usually they're not so antagonistic. Like, she really calls him out. She has such a presence in these weird moments where she, like, creeps up on his shoulder and is talking to him while he's talking to somebody else. It's, like, such a weird dynamic but she feels real in a way that usually those kind of ghostly, either, you know, wife characters never do. Um, and she's another great actress I feel like deserved way better than, you know, being stuck on Law & Order SVU. As a, <laughs> so oh, God. She, uh, yeah. she also received a Independent Spirit Award nomination for this performance. Um, almost all of Cassie's films have received some love at the Independent Spirit Awards. I think... Came, um, Black Nativity is the only one that didn't receive an indie spirit nom, which, you know, it's a, it's a little less um, indie than her other three films. That's true. Um, but it's, it's nice to see that uh, she at least gets some love from some organization. Um, so this was, so her first film she wrote, and then Cayman's Valentine's based on a, a book, and the man who wrote the book wrote the screenplay. And then the next film that she did, 2007's Talk to Me, was also not written by her. It's written by uh, Michael Ganey and Rick Famuyiwa. Fam- I always say his name wrong. Rick Famuyiwa. I'm always um, pronouncing his name wrong, so I'm like, not the best help. He's a director <laughs> that I really enjoy. I I think I've seen all of his films, and I, I always like his films. They're fun. Um, but, so... And then in Talk to Me, it's the first time we see her working with her husband, mm-hmm. uh, Vondi Curtis Hall, who is who's uh, one of those that guys. I didn't know his name until I was uh, reading about her, and then I was like, wait, I know this actor. He's in everything. Um, he did actually pop up at Eve's Bayou. Did he? Um, he yeah, so remember the, the dude that Debbie Morgan's character Moselle falls in love with, and she's afraid he's going to die, and he has that long oh, hair? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was in that. <laughs> yeah, but he's playing a character that you kind of wouldn't... Ex- I mean, he's a character actor, so he plays a lot of different types. But in that film, he's far sexier than I think a lot of directors let him be. Yes. So it's easy to kind of not recognize him from other, you know, he's a work very, in the film. He's a very distinct face, which is why I recognized him and then was like, oh... How did I not have a name for this this guy before? But there's, you know, there's so many that guys. Um, yeah, that's true. So I saw Talk to Me last year uh, after I saw Eve's Bayou. Um, and this one, again, has a great cast. It's Don Cheadle, who is one of my favorites. Uh, Chuita Lajea 4. Taraji P. Henson, who just owns it in this movie. Uh, Cedric the Entertainer. Mike Epps. Martin Sheen. Uh, and Vondi Curtis Hall. Mm-hmm. So this is a great cast. Um, and for some reason, Taraji P. Henson gets like, I don't know, six billing or something. And she's she's so good in this movie. 
then I was like, you should be, like, number, at least number three on this. Yeah, part. that's weird that she gets such low billing, because her character's, I mean, a pivotal supporting character. Mm-hmm. And she, like, she, there's a scene where she first shows up at the radio station, and she's just, like, a ball of fire. She's so good. Um, I love Taraji. I do, too. She's great. And I'm... I'm sort of bummed. I mean, I'm glad that she's hit a really high point in her career with her work on television, but she's another one that I wish was just a huge movie star because she has such a great star quality Mm -hmm. that she should be opening, like, three movies a year. Yeah, and to be honest, I feel like Empire does not use her well. She can do so much more than Empire that it's kind of... I always get kind of nervous when I see black actresses get on shows like that and I'm like you know yes you're making good money you're you're now far have far higher of a profile but please do not just do this or please do more than this show dear god I hate that show so much I actually have not seen a single episode you're fine (laughs) keep on moving I've seen it's the same you know I've seen some good clips I saw the clip where she like Threw the glass of water and then punched the person, and I was like, "I'm pretty sure this is I'm, this is good. I'm I'm done." <laughs> I, I mean, it's it's fun. I'll say that. I like, just can't. She's always on eleven. I like, can't watch for Terrence Howard. He he just creeps me out. Well, I mean, for good reason. The dude's kind of like a major creep. I will I never forget when I read the article, whenever it was, where he talked about clean, having his women be clean. And oh making my them God. baby wipes. I like, baby wipes. Yeah, I can't unthink <laughs> that every time I see him. That's yeah. it. That's all I think about. Because um, it's so such cool. an image. <sighs> yeah, it, it really is. Like, it really puts an image in your head. Oh, <laughs> 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 uh, God. Baby wipes. That's Ooh. what I call I don't even call my name anymore. No. <laughs> so, in... in Talk to me. Um, Chuita Lejeofor actually won the Independent Spirit Award for his performance in this. Um, and I feel like both him and Don Cheadle really rock the, the like, changing hairstyles. Oh, yeah, they in this do. Film. Like, you, you kind of, I think they should all win Oscars just for great hair. Um, <laughs> but I'll, Don Cheadle's one of those guys that he's always so good. He, I've been a fan of his since I was about 15. Oh, wow. Which, oh, my God, makes me realize that's half my life. Um, and I, <laughs> like, like, because what did I see? I saw um, probably Bullworth was the first yeah. film I saw him in where I was like, who is this? Why is he so good? And then um, right after I saw that is when the first Ocean's Eleven came out. And I was like, is this the same guy? He is, he's got a British accent. What is happening? And then... Turns out it's not really his accent, um, but I didn't know. Um, and then just sort of following his career, he's another one who sort of pivoted into television and has done a lot of television and then occasionally pops up in great films or mm-hmm. at least in great performances in films. Yeah. But, like, he he should be such a great high-profile actor, and then he has this Miles Davis thing, and he had to kickstart it. And you're like, I didn't even know that. He had to kickstart it? Yeah, it was a kickstarted uh, project. And he's great. He's so good. Um, he And it's, it's asshole later, like older Miles Davis, which is the Miles Davis we all should be watching, <laughs> to be honest. Um, 
But yeah, it's it's great to see with with Lemons that she continually brings these actors that don't often get roles that are to their caliber and she gets them roles that are to their caliber and I think that's says a lot about her as a director I agree I definitely agree if I was an actor I'd want to work with her because she she really you, you can see she really pushes her actors and lets them do a lot of really interesting things and everyone in talk to me is on fire it's a really good film it's it's a like start to finish high energy which is the thing I love about all of Lemons' films is from start to finish, they never lag. They never, there's never a moment where you're like, oh shit, I'm watching a movie. Like you're so sucked into the stories mm-hmm. and to the performances and their performances are so at such a high level that you just, you want, you're, li- you feel like you're living with these, these characters. They're also, you know, very tightly constructed, even though she kind of likes to play with time and fantasy a lot. Like there's always little fantastical moments or, you know what I mean? So She's someone who really knows how to keep a film rolling and structure it well. Yes, I think, and her, I think almost all of her films are right on the two-hour mark or really mm-hmm. close to the two-hour mark, and they never really feel it. Like, you never, you're never in the middle of the film going, finish already. You're just like, it, it's over, and you're like, no, come back. Um, that's a, yeah, that's how I felt because I, I decided to rewatch uh, The Caveman's Valentine because I hadn't seen it in a while. And I was like, wow, I really loved this film more than I remember. And it does end and you're like, wait a minute, I want to see a little bit more of these people because they feel very real no matter what sort of setting they're in. And that's something that's very striking to me. Yeah, and even though like as that film progresses, it gets more and more like bonkers, as you say, <laughs> yeah. like it's, it's, the kind of, bonkers. it's the kind of bonkers that you just don't want to end. You just want to keep yeah. living in this, in this, in this bonkers world. And like the, um, sort of the fantasy moments where it's these mock people that live in his head. Mm-hmm. That part I really loved because it, it felt like that great modern dance mixed with this sort of idea of the voices in your head. Yeah, Um, yeah. One thing I want to highlight from Cassie's work is I think there's a great sense of physicality that you see with her actors in all her films, which is now I'm just thinking about that because of how you describe those uh, moments where we really get to see inside of uh, Samuel L. Jackson's head, so to speak, uh, in his sort of warped episodes um but then i don't know there's a lot of times i'll watch modern directors and i feel like they're way too obsessed with close-ups and they don't let us see the ways an actor can act with their body mm-hmm. and not just their face and that's i think also why i really like her work a lot um because she seems really interested in the physicality of her actors and how different it can manifest and tell you a story Definitely in um, something I meant to bring up earlier, in Caveman's Valentine, you get to see a lot of Samuel L. Jackson's body. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I'd ever seen his butt in a film before, but he's a nice one. Yeah, you one. see his ass. Like, I was... <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh my goodness. Um, who knew? <laughs> who knew? Samuel L. Jackson has an ass. There you go. Hey, Samuel. Yeah, you know, um, yeah. because <laughs> yeah, the mirror scene when he's like, he's getting cleaned up in Anthony Michael Hall's apartment mm-hmm. and he like looks at himself. You have this moment 
this prolonged moment with him just like looking at himself naked and I was like huh that's a rare sight and it was it was very vulnerable um, because you you can see him sort of taking in himself in a way that he probably hadn't in a very long time and and sort of being okay with what he saw which was nice you know, because a lot, a lot of times you'll have, like, you, you see yourself in a way and you're like, oh, my God, this is, I hate myself. Or I hate the way I look. And instead, he, he's like, oh, this is how I look. Um, and he, you know he's a character that's really conscious of the way he looks and the way people treat him because of the way he looks. Exactly. So it's, it's a great moment to see him take off all of that and see what he really is. Yeah, and it's nice to see an actor like Samuel L. Jackson get to have quiet moments and be vulnerable. And recently I've become really obsessed with how black masculinity is portrayed and when we do get those vulnerable moments. So that, re-watching the film, I was really struck by that scene with him looking at himself in the mirror. So um, have you you've seen Black Nativity then as well? That I have not seen. It's, it's a strange film because it's based on um, a Broadway play written by Langston Hughes. And I'm not mm. sure how often it's um, staged. but it's, So it's based on Langston Hughes, but obviously they've updated it to be modern in the version that hit theaters. And it's partly set in Baltimore, partly set in New York City. And it very much feels almost like a play. Um, and you're following this character, this teenager, his name is, I'm trying to remember, oh my god, where'd it go? Wikipedia is not telling me the guy's name. Not helpful. Um, okay, well anyways, it's, you follow this teenager because his, his mother, played by, uh, Jennifer Hudson, has just lost her job. It's Christmas, she's not happy with her family, but, like, when you've lost your job and it's Christmas, the only place to go is your family. So she sends him away and is trying to figure out how to get money for Christmas and to, like, keep their apartment. And the son is going through angst because he doesn't know his grandparents. And now he's stuck with his grandparents in a city that he doesn't know anything about and it's Christmas time. And obviously Christmas causes a lot of feelings for a lot of people because it's very – it's where you think about family a lot. And also I think when the most suicides happen – so, so it's a very wow. that's yeah, it's a very um, emotionally volatile time for a lot of people, and so you get this you get this kid in this emotional place with his grandparents he doesn't know well. It's Forrest Whitaker and Angela Bassett. Then you you know he doesn't know his father, but his father might be in the area, and that's part of why his mother doesn't live there anymore. And so you're like wondering, is the father going to show up? You don't know. Um, and then you've got, like, all these great street people. So you have Tyrese Gibson as one of the street people, Nas as one of the street people, and then Mary J. Blige playing an angel. <laughs> oh, Mary. And this is your movie. Um, and so then you have all these moments that are uh, songs, obviously, because you have Jennifer Hudson mm-hmm. and Nas, so you're not going to not have songs. And, and it's just this... Um, perfect storm of a weekend of of angst and holidays and religion and family and like 
wanting to get presents but not having money for presents and what is the whole point of presents if you're you know like isn't yourself a good, a good enough present for family and it's just there's a lot of things going on in this movie uh-huh. um, and then it's just so beautifully staged mm. um, because you get it's 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 winter so you get like the snow and it almost looks like it's taking place in a snow globe oh wow because it's like this one neighborhood and I don't know. It's it's one of my favorite Christmas movies, I think, that I've ever seen because everything everything about it just really worked for me. And maybe it was because I saw it like in the theaters and and I have angst at Christmas and so seeing other other people go through angst at Christmas just makes me feel better about my own angst <laughs> at Christmas. <laughs> yeah, I tend to avoid Christmas movies because Christmas is such a weird time of year for me. Yes, Christmas is Christmas is such a loaded time. Ugh, it's terrible. <laughs> I tend to, yeah, I tend to. Christmas is my favorite time of the year, but it's also like my most, as I said, emotionally loaded time of the year. I have a lot of I have a lot of terrible memories from Christmas time. Um, Me too. But, but I love the thought of Christmas so much that I try to like. I don't know. I try to. I try to just live in other people's. Christmases. <laughs> yeah, you're better than me. I'm a total Grinch when my Christmas season rolls around. So, um, I don't know. I'll have to check it out because I still haven't seen that one. That's the one that, that I haven't seen. It's it's definitely good. It's it's a higher budget, I think, than she's worked with in the past. Um, yeah. And you can kind of see. But it also didn't do very well. It didn't do well with the critics. It didn't do well... At the box office, they've tried to re- release it in a couple of different ways, um, like repackaging the music and stuff. And, yeah. and I'm not really sure why it didn't do well. I don't know if it's because it's it's not quite what we're used to from her. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it's because it's got all this magical realism. But uh, you know, anytime Mary J. Blige plays an angel, I'm pretty happy. So, and <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I wonder if. Um, it came out, you know, sort of a little before the the most recent sort of look at the way um, black teenagers are viewed, mm. right? And so there's moments where, like, there's a moment where he's arrested pretty much for just being a black teenager. Wow. Um, and and it, this came out at the end of 2013, so it was before um, a lot of this conversation was really happening. I feel like if it had come out now, there would have been a lot more um, discussion of sort of the racism that's discussed within the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, sometimes movies get released too soon, you know, yeah. or too early, and they're, and they're like too ahead of, of the cultural discussion, and so they get left behind. That's true. And this is the first film that she wrote since Eve's Bayou. Mm, interesting. And I read a quote that said that she is always writing, that she's writes has been working on screenplays nonstop for the last 20 years, and yet these are the only two, just for her first one and this last one, are the only two of her own screenplays that she managed to get made. Which makes me wonder, like, what kind of stories does she have that, like, she's unable to fund? Probably her most interesting. Yes. <laughs> to be no, I mean honestly, probably that's you know, you know, 
ideas that probably don't fit into the kind of work people still sort of expect from black female directors. I mean, there's been a lot of movement, but still. I was reading about one that she was working on that just seemed so nutty that I was like, please make this movie. It was a sci-fi, which like, obviously there you go. Um, I feel like genre is a, is a part of film that people think white dudes have to make. Which is infuriating as someone who has loved, you know, science fiction and stuff like that. And also it it kind of betrays that people, I think, have no real understanding of the history of certain genres. If you're really thinking it's, it's like the terrain of white men, like pick up a book. Like, what are you guys doing? When Octavia Butler is one of the most powerful sci-fi fantasy writers in this, like I could go on a rant about this, but what was the idea about? I'm trying to find the quote. I read it a couple days ago, and now I can't find it. But it was like, it sounded so amazing. Hmm. She's also supposed to be adapting Zadie Smith's On Beauty. Oh, really? Yeah, the only version of a Zadie Smith adaptation I've seen was the, like, BBC miniseries version of White Teeth. Hmm. And it was terrible. It was so bad. And that book is so good. And, like, everything that was good about the book was not in the movie. And I was like, you had six episodes to make this thing, and this is what you chose? Oh, it's not good. Yeah, I mean, speaking of, you know, Cassie Lemon's sci-fi idea, you know, I'm really interested in seeing black women do more genre work. That's what I'm really interested in. Like, I want to see a black woman as the lead of a really good noir. Like, I'm still waiting and waiting and waiting for that. But. Oh, here it is. Here it is. So this was supposed to come out right after she did uh, Caveman's Valentine. She's working on a screenplay that she wrote called The Battle Battle of Cloverfield. And it was a supernatural thriller that she was working on with Columbia. And it never made it past the development stage. So here it is. I found the, okay. It's a supernatural thriller about a small southern town that becomes haunted by its ghosts. Oh. So some sort of a similar take on Eve's Bayou, but more uh, crossing the genre line, I guess. Nice. That is ridiculous. I wish, you know, maybe maybe she can get it made now. Yeah, because that actually sounds like a really cool idea. And you can go in so many directions, especially since it's taking place in the South. Yeah. She also, I like that. Um, she also did the, you remember the Sidney Poitier um, tribute at the Oscars? Like, yes, years yeah. years ago? That was her, uh, she produced that. Oh, I didn't even know that. I didn't know that either until I, you know, I was reading. She's So she's done a lot of things that, like, we wouldn't know she'd done if we didn't look up that she'd done it. You know, because the yeah. Oscars, you don't really, you know, they never really talk about, like, who does what on those. Mm-hmm. On those shows. Yeah, that's true. I don't know. It just, it still makes me sad, like, to hear that she has such a cool idea and it, we don't even see it. I don't know. I get so, sometimes it's easy to get down in the dumps about these female directors who, Wow, like it's just infuriating looking at the history of film and just seeing so many great 
women, especially women of color, who just don't get the opportunities they deserve. So it looks like her next project, she's directing an episode of Shots Fired. Oh. Which is with another one of my favorite directors, Gina Prince-Bythewood. I love her. She's great. And that's another one who, like, she unfortunately is able to take her time between projects, but basically... She'll have an idea for a project, and it will take seven years to get the funding. And she has, you know, she's able to, like, feed herself in that amount of time. But it's like, it shouldn't take seven years for her to get films made. No, it shouldn't. It really shouldn't. No. And and I love her. She's a great director. It's never the development that takes the seven years. Like, she has the the script, and it's like, getting the funding is what takes the seven years. Which is telling. Yes. Um, oh, Jonathan Demi's shooting one of the episodes of this. Oh, I don't know. Wait a minute. Yeah. I, I, uh, it's Jonathan Demi, Malcolm D. Lee, Cassie Lemons, Amy Kanan Mann, Gina Prince-Bythewood, and Millicent Shelton. Millicent Shelton is one of my favorite directors working in television. I'm sorry. I was about to geek out <laughs> over her for a second. Actually, let me just briefly oh, geek yeah, out over her. She's directed my favorite episodes of The Flash, especially last season's um, Welcome to Earth 2. Mm-hmm. So whenever, you know, people make a big deal about the fact that Kevin Smith has, like, directed some Flash episodes and he's going to be back this season. I don't give a damn about him. But she has such a great handling of action. I'm looking at her filmography right now and I'm like, Wow. It's insane that she does not, when people keep, this is a problem I feel when it comes to female directors is that people really only, and it's because they don't do their research and have a very narrow view, but they don't really know many directors beyond a handful. So they keep recommending the same women for the same jobs. Anytime something with a black character pops up or they want someone to do a comic book movie, they're like, oh, Ava DuVernay, even though she didn't want to do Black Panther for a reason, yeah. why are you going to keep recommending as if that's what the, that's not the kind of work she does? Millicent and Shelton should be getting one of these big screen jobs. People keep mentioning the same directors to direct Captain Marvel because apparently they don't know anything but white women, which is, yeah. don't even get me started oh on. Oh my God, they're like Mulan, there are so many great Chinese-American female directors that could direct Mulan, and everyone's like, why don't we get Ang Lee? And I'm like, Ang Lee is not the only, like, director out there who could do Mulan. Like, come on, guys. Come yeah, on. who I would like to see do Mulan is uh, Jennifer Fang, who yes. directed Ad- Advantageous, and she's... She's uh, directed some episodes of The Exorcist TV show. She's a really great director, and she can do a lot with very little. So whenever people are like, mention a, you know, a woman of color director you want to see more, and I'm like, Jennifer Fang and Millicent Shelton, <laughs> and they do really, like, Millicent Shelton, like, it's not all the time that I watch an episode of The Flash, and I'm like, who directed this? Like, it was noticeable how good she was at handling the actors and the action. It was undoubtedly the best episode last season. And she's going to be directing another episode of the show um, during season three, so I'm really excited to see what she Ooh. does. She directed music videos for Mary J. Blige, R. Kelly, Aaliyah, and Salt and Peppa. So that makes me happy. And she went to NYU. Oh, she worked with uh, Spike Lee. This makes sense. Uh-huh. This all makes sense. She's cool. I like her work. Oh, she did the Let's Talk About Sex music video? Oh, my yep. God. Oh, my God. Ugh. 
This is great. Okay, I, this is I hadn't even I hadn't even heard of her before. Now I'm just like now I'm a big fan. Yeah, um, great. More fans for <laughs> Shelton. So I can like have other people banging her drum whenever like these comic book movies like come out. Or and they're like or there's in development and they're like, huh, who should direct this? And I'm like, please Melissa Shelton, like she's really good. It all sort of goes to that idea, like you said, that people they know like five directors that are women and there's entire databases of women who are currently working. We're not even talking like all the women who don't even direct anymore. We're talking about like actively working female directors. There are thousands, literally thousands of, yep. of women. Not that they're all good, but it's like not all male directors are good, right? But they're there. And the amount that are good are way more than five women, you know? Exactly. And you just have to sort of take a chance and like some of the dudes that get to make things you've never heard of them either and somehow you know they'll take a chance on the dude because they have you know backwards baseball cap or something and it's like just the most frustrating it is frustrating and I also to be honest get kind of frustrated with critics when they kind of do the same thing and they're recommending the same female directors and I'm like y'all need to be better than that okay come on now there there's others Yes. You can. Yes. Every time there's a, a list of like ten directors who should be doing X, and it's the same ten women, and then like no, there's so many more women. And and to your point with Ava DuVernay, she's she doesn't make Black Panther type movies. So make that list of women who do make those sort of films or who have done television that's similar to the film that you're looking for. Like um, when they first were doing uh, when they. F- first hired Michelle McLaren for um, Wonder Woman. That made sense. It did. And then, didn't it? And then that didn't work out, and they went with, um, I just, I'm spacing on her name, from Patty, Patty Jenkins. Jenkins. And part of me is like, she was going to direct this other comic book movie and left, so clearly she hadn't, she wanted to make comic book movies, but she also made Monster, which is one of the greatest love story, like, serial killer movies I've ever seen. And I want her to make films like that, but it's like, I guess if that's what she wants to do, she wants to make, you know, comic book movies, that's that's great. But um, I don't know where I was going with that other than I'm glad that she's making movies. Um, <laughs> have, you yeah. seen, have you seen Monster? Oh, yeah, I've seen Monster, oh, I and Monster. I really do like that movie. But I do think it's weird that she's directing Wonder Woman. It's- and that's something I've had, like, a lot of conversations about because I'm – you know, obsessed with Wonder Woman, and when Wonder Woman news pops up, I, like, you know, get asked about it, but I don't think, I don't know, like, you know, maybe she'll really surprise us, but, like, I thought uh, Michelle McLaurin made perfect sense for a Wonder Woman movie, so it's kind of, I don't know, we'll see. I'm really curious how that film's going to turn out. I'm also, oh. like, they're quote-unquote actively seeking a female director for Captain Marvel, and it's like, I'm so afraid I'm so afraid of who they're gonna like. What does that even mean? Have they are they are they actually looking at more than five women or no? They're looking at like I forgot who this weekend of the rumored uh, directors, but there was some of this really expected. They're all white women, of course. But mm-hmm. um, one thing I think is hilarious is that these um, behemoth companies are getting praised because they want a woman directing their women properties. Call me when they actually let women, I don't know, direct a Batman movie. <laughs> yeah. 
I was uh. I was reading um, one of my favorite films is Little Women from 1994. Oh yeah, I love that film. So it turns out it was it was um, conceived and, and and written and um, the pro- project was was fe- was rent- was a project of women from the get go. And when they got Winona Ryder on, she specifically said, "I want a female director." And the reason they went with Jillian Armstrong was not because Jillian Armstrong is a great director. And, and it should have been because she's a great director, but because she was literally the only director that had a contract at that time with the studio. Ooh, wow. Right? So, yeah, so that was that was 12 years or 22 years ago. And this is one of my favorite films, and I'm really glad that they got her because she's such a great director, and I think she did a, a great job. But the fact that she got that job because she was literally the only woman that had a contract at that studio at the time is just flabbergasting. And and it's sort of how where we're at still now. Like they'll they'll talk to these five women because these five women probably know like one of the dudes that's working on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, or they've worked together at some point where, you know, it, it has nothing to do with the work of the women and everything to do with the um, working relationships and or uh, who you know, you know, networking. Exactly. Which is it's, also depressing. But it, kinda... It's really depressing. And I think that's, you know, why stagnation sort of sets in. It's like, yeah, great. We have, you know, Ava DuVernay is now, I think, become for a lot of people like the black female filmmaker. So it's really great that she brings other women up with her, with, you know, Queen Sugar. Uh, because she shouldn't be the only one people are mentioning. Like that, if I swear to the high heavens, if I see another person recommend her for some huge sci-fi property when that's not what her interest is in, I'm like going to flip. Like there's other directors, people. Come on now. Yeah, there's there's just so many, so many different people that they should be talking about that they, they just, it, but it keeps, it keeps circling at, at least though, to slightly play devil's advocate, it used to just be Nora Ephron and Catherine Bigelow, <laughs> right? And oh, God, least, yeah, that's true. At least we've moved past only Catherine Bigelow and Nora Ephron being the only people anyone knows, you know? And Sofia Coppola, which, mm-hmm. where is Sofia Coppola? And come back to us. I want, yeah. I want movies from her. I love her. She, I didn't like her when I was younger, and the older I've gotten, the more I've rewatched her films, the more I appreciate her as a, as a, as a voice. Um, I think I was sort of sullied on her because of so much of the discussion about her was sort of very misogynistic and, and talking about how she was, you know, Coppola's daughter and everything, everything that she got, she got because she was Coppola's daughter. And, and that sort of spoiled my point of view of her. And then when Mm -hmm. I got rid of that sort of misogyny out of my head and was like, no, she's an artist in and of herself and realized She's actually, I think, has a stronger point of view than her father ever did. I think she does. And I'll say that to anybody. I actually have a lot of feelings about (laughs) her. Um, And she's not even one I'm obsessed with, but I also have had a similar journey with her where as I've gotten older, I think I appreciate her work more, especially how she deals with the fragility of women. Mm -hmm. I think it's really interesting. Um, And it kind of infuriates me whenever this happens with a female director or female creative where they're like, Oh, it's only because she's married or 
just such and such, or her dad is such and such. Like, that's pretty much everyone in Hollywood. Yeah. Like, so shut the hell up. Like, I'm, like, I think also because, you know, people talk about her like that because of what kind of film she directs. Yeah, there's a lot of talking down about Mm -hmm. her, her POV because she makes these mostly films about sort of fragile teenage girls or, or, um... Well, they're just basically teenage girls. Yeah. Um, the only one that's that's a little less about young women is is um, somewhere. But I really loved that film. Uh, I thought it was one of the best sort of depictions of mental illness that I maybe have ever seen. Oh wow! I still haven't I've, seen that. Have so you seen that it? But just people, made me want to see it. People liked to shit on the film because they felt like it was um, a rich man who why why should he be sad? Oh, that is a pet. Oh, wow. Uh, and that's I was like, I was like, that's I the point. That. that was the point of the film. The point of the film was even if you have everything, if you're stuck with this with mental illness, you, every all the riches in the world, including a, a loving teenage daughter, is not enough sometimes to get yeah. you past it. And and I was super depressed when I saw this movie. So it really, really spoke to me. I was like, I feel this because it, it's it's about a man who can't feel anything basically. Like he's so numbed by his his mental illness that he can't even feel joy, like hanging out with his daughter. It's mm-hmm. it's a beautiful film. Um, I'll have to check that out then because and also whatever critics said that they need to shut up because I am so tired of the way some people write about mental illness within film. That is something I'm obviously very sensitive about. Mm-hmm. There's not just a lot of misunderstanding of what mental illness is and how it affects you and how um it's not it has nothing to do with with the world outside of you exactly and it affects everybody from people who have nothing to people who quote-unquote have everything like because the outside isn't what's being affected it's the inside but yeah that says a lot about how we discuss mental illness just in general in society so it does and that's something that you know, fingers crossed about this book proposal because I just really want to get to write about that in like a longer work. That will that will be great because you've definitely done in the last year or so some really great writing on several television shows that have um, discussed mental illness, and and your writing has really been very clear about what works and what doesn't work and what tropes keep popping back up that just need to stop. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I really, really love your writing. Um, which brings us to our sort of end here. Um, do you have any last thoughts on Cassie Lemons as a filmmaker, as um, a just a person? Uh, I think Cassie Lemons deserves to be written about more by critics. That's like one of the first things I'll say. I want to see some like really meaty essays about what she does and her how she shows the vulnerabilities of black people and different aspects of the black experience that are so often not given the spotlight in films. And I think she deserves praise that she does not get. And I think she's just sincerely one of the most emotionally evocative directors working today. So with Kathy Lemons, would you recommend people start with Eve's Bayou and work their way sort of chronologically through her? I mean, it's only four films, so it's not a hard... Uh, filmography to catch up on 
Yeah, I would actually say she's a director I would recommend people see her work chronologically because it's interesting to see how she grows as a director and what she builds on. Uh, so definitely start with Eve's Bayou. And I think that one, as of this recording, is still on Netflix, so you should have a pretty easy way to find that. Um, the hard nice. one the hard one to find is Caveman's Valentine. I had to, had to hunt for that one. Um, but if you find it, it's definitely worth watching and you won't see anything like it um i guarantee you so let's see here uh we did the last thoughts um so can you remind everyone one last time where they can find you i can't actually remember if i asked you to do that at the beginning um in terms of like on twitter etc um so if you want to follow my work uh the best way to see what i'm doing is on twitter and my handle is my first and last name angelica bastian and that's a-n-g-e-l-i-c-a B-A-S-T-I-E-N, or you can check out my website, which is rarely updated, but I'm going to start updating it more, and that's madwomeninmuses.com. And um, I can't recommend her uh, feminine grotesque column more, and I think it's all on, does it all live on that URL, or part of it does? Part of it does, um, but it was up on a site for a while, and I decided to stop it partially because I was doing way too much work and got a little bit overly ambitious. And I felt like that column deserved to really have be developed properly. But, um, you can, if you look on my site, you'll see links for it. Um, and all the other work I do for places like Vulture. Okay. That's wonderful. Um, I want to thank you again for dropping by and talking Cassie Lemons and then a little sidebar on some other really great directors with me. This has been a really fun show. This has been awesome. Thank you for inviting me. Um, and for the future of Female Filmmaker Friday, I believe the next show is going to be on Kelly Reichert. I am hoping to record a show with Kristen Sales again. Nice. Um, so hopefully that will happen in two weeks after this one. If it's not Kelly Reichert, I'm not sure because I have a couple of others in the hopper. We'll see. Um, but thank you again for listening. And if you, um, are, if this is your first show, there's been uh, four others, so you should check them all out. And they're all really great discussions. And um, I hope to talk about more female directors in the future. Thank you and goodbye. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.